Since you've made it this far, you must be enjoying this book, and that makes me so happy. You deserve to sleep well every night, so be sure to check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed where you'll find exclusive bonus episodes. That way, you'll never run out of stories to put you to sleep. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. I'm so glad to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be returning to Jane Eyre, Before that, I'll give you some time to settle down for the night. First, give yourself a big stretch. Allow all the tension to release from your muscles. You have nothing left to do today but get a good night's sleep. Isn't that a lovely feeling? Now, take some deep breaths. Inhale deeply and mentally collect all the thoughts still occupying your mind. And on your exhale, let them all go. Once more, inhale and exhale. Last time we were together, Jane and Mr. Rochester were talking in the schoolroom the morning after their engagement. Jane asked why he wanted her to think he was marrying Miss Ingram. He admitted he thought jealousy would be the best way to get Jane to fall in love with him. Before they left for Millcote, Jane stopped in on Mrs. Fairfax whom Mr. Rochester had just informed of their marriage. She surprised Jane by giving her a word of caution about the master. Jane managed to get Mr. Rochester to agree to allow Adele to join them on their trip to Millcote. He took Jane to a silk merchant's to pick out dresses, but Jane felt uncomfortable and on the way home, she told Mr. Rochester she didn't want anything to be different between them till the wedding. He reluctantly acceded. He called to see Jane each night as usual, but Jane insisted on being coy and difficult in order to keep him at arm's length. And that's where we pick back up tonight with the month of the engagement almost complete and the wedding day finally upon them. So, just try to relax and continue to breathe deeply as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 25 The month of courtship had wasted. Its very last hours were being numbered. There was no putting off the day that advanced, the bridal day, and all the preparations for its arrival were complete. 
I, at least, had nothing more to do. There were my trunks, packed, locked, corded, ranged in a row along the wall of my little chamber. Tomorrow, at this time, they would be far on their road to London, and so should I, or rather, not I, but one Jane Rochester, a person whom as yet I knew not. The cards of the address alone remained to nail on. They lay four little squares in the drawer. Mr. Rochester had himself written the direction. Mrs. Rochester, the name of our hotel, London, on each. I could not persuade myself to affix them or to have them affixed. Mrs. Rochester, she did not exist. She would not be born till tomorrow, sometime after eight o'clock a.m., and I would wait to be assured she had come into the world alive before I assigned to her all that property. It was enough that in yonder closet, opposite my dressing table, garments said to be hers had already displaced my black stuff lowwood frog and straw bonnet, for not to me appertained that suit of wedding raiment, the pearl-coloured robe, the vapory veil pendant from the usurped portmanteau. I shut the closet to conceal the strange, wraith-like apparel it contained, which at this evening hour, nine o'clock, gave out certainly a most ghostly shimmer through the shadow of my apartment. I will leave you by yourself, white dream, I said. I'm feverish. I hear the wind blowing. I will go out of doors and feel it. It was not only the hurry of preparation that made me feverish, not only the anticipation of great change, the new life which was to commence tomorrow. Both these circumstances had their share, doubtless, in producing that restless, excited mood which hurried me forth at this late hour into the darkening grounds. But a third cause influenced my mind more than they. I had at heart a strange and anxious thought. Something had happened which I could not comprehend. No one knew or had even seen the event but myself. It had taken place the preceding night. Mr. Rochester that night was absent from home, nor was he yet returned. Business had called him to a small estate of two or three farms he possessed, thirty miles off. Business it was requisite he should settle in person, previous to his meditated departure from England. I waited now his return, eager to unburden my mind 
and to seek of him the solution of the enigma that perplexed me. Stay till he comes, reader, and when I disclose my secret to him, you shall share the confidence. I sought the orchard, driven to its shelter by the wind, which all day had blown strong and full from the south, without, however, bringing a speck of rain. Instead of subsiding as night drew on, it seemed to augment its rush and deepen its roar. The trees blew steadfastly one way, never writhing round and scarcely tossing back their boughs once in an hour. So continuous was the strain, bending their branchy heads northward. The clouds drifted from pole to pole, fast following, mass on mass. No glimpse of blue sky had been visible that July day. It was not without a certain wild pleasure I ran before the wind, delivering my trouble of mind to the measureless air torrent thundering through space. Descending the laurel walk, I faced the wreck of the chestnut tree. It stood up, black and riven, the trunk split down the center, gasped ghastly. The cloven halves were not broken from each other, for the firm base and strong roots kept them unsundered below. Though community of vitality was destroyed, the sap could flow no more. Their great boughs on each side were dead, and next winter's tempests would be sure to fell one or both to earth. As yet, however, they might be said to form one tree, a ruin, but an entire ruin. We did right to hold fast to each other, I said, as if the monster splinters were living things and could hear me. I think, scathed as you look, and charred, and scorched, there must be a little sense of life in you yet, rising out of that adhesion at the faithful, honest roots. You will never have green leaves more, never more see birds making nests and singing idols in your bowers. The time of pleasure and love is over with you, but you are not desolate. Each of you has a comrade to sympathize with him in his decay. As I looked up at them, the moon appeared momentarily in that part of the sky which filled their fissure. Her disc was blood red and half overcast. She seemed to throw on me one bewildered, dreary glance and buried herself again instantly in the deep drift of cloud. 
The wind fell for a second round Thornfield, but far away, over wood and water, poured a wild, melancholy wail. It was sad to listen to, and I ran off again. Here and there I strayed through the orchard, gathered up the apples with which the grass round the tree roots was thickly strewn. Then I employed myself in dividing the ripe from the unripe. I carried them into the house and put them away in the storeroom. Then I repaired to the library to ascertain whether the fire was lit, for though summer, I knew on such a gloomy evening Mr. Rochester would like to see a cheerful hearth when he came in. Yes, the fire had been kindled some time and burned well. I placed his armchair by the chimney corner. I wheeled the table near it. I let down the curtain and had the candles brought in ready for lighting. More restless than ever when I had completed these arrangements, I could not sit still, nor even remain in the house. A little timepiece in the room and the old clock in the hall simultaneously struck ten. How late it grows, I said. I will run down to the gates. It is moonlit at intervals. We can see a good way down the road. He may be coming now, and to meet him will save some minutes of suspense. The wind roared high in the great trees which embowered the gates, but the road, as far as I could see, to the right hand and the left, was all still and solitary, save for the shadows of clouds crossing it at intervals as the moon looked out, it was but a long, pale line, unvaried by one moving speck. A puerile tear dimmed my eye while I looked, a tear of disappointment and impatience Ashamed of it, I wiped it away. I lingered. The moon shut herself wholly within her chamber and drew close her curtain of dense cloud. The night grew dark. Rain came driving fast on the gale. I wish she would come. I wish she would come, I said seized with hypochondriac foreboding. I had expected his arrival before tea. Now it was dark. What could keep him? Had an accident happened? The event of last night again recurred to me. I interpreted it as a warning of disaster. I feared my hopes were too bright to be realized and I had enjoyed so much bliss lately that I imagined my fortune had passed its meridian and must now decline. Well, I cannot return to the house. 
I thought. I cannot sit by the fireside while he is abroad in inclement weather. Better tie my limbs than strain my heart. I will go forward and meet him. I set out. I walked fast, but not far. Ere I had measured a quarter of a mile, I heard the tramp of hooves. A horseman came on, full gallop. A dog ran by his side. Away with evil presentiment. It was he. Here he was, mounted on Mesrur, followed by Pilate. He saw me, for the moon had opened a blue field in the sky and rode in it watery bright. He took his hat off and waved it round his head. I now ran to meet him. There, he said as he stretched out his hand and bent from the saddle. You can't do without me, that is evident. Step on my boot toe. Give me both hands. Mount. I obeyed. Joy made me agile. I sprang up before him. A hearty kissing I got for a welcome and some boastful triumph, which I swallowed as well as I could. He checked himself in his exultation to demand, Is there anything the matter, Janet? you come to meet me at such an hour. Is there anything wrong? No, but I thought you would never come, I replied. Could not bear to wait in the house for you, especially with this rain and wind. Rain and wind indeed, said he. Yes, you are dripping like a mermaid. Pull my cloak round you. But I think you are feverish, Jane. Both your cheek and hand burning hot. I ask again, is there anything the matter? Nothing now. I am neither afraid nor unhappy. Then you have been both. Rather. But I'll tell you all about it by and by, sir. And I dare say you will only laugh at me for my pains. I'll laugh at you heartily when tomorrow is past. Till then, I dare not. My prize is not certain. This is you, who have been as slippery as an eel this last month, and as thorny as a briar rose. Could not lay a finger anywhere, but I was pricked, and now I seem to have gathered up a stray lamb in my arms. You wandered out of the fold to seek your shepherd, did you, Jane? I wanted you. Don't boast. Here we are at Thornfield. Now let me get down. He landed me on the pavement as John took his horse, and he followed me into the hall. He told me to make haste and put something dry on, and then returned to him in the library. And he stopped me as I made for the staircase to extort a promise that I would not be long nor was I long. In five minutes, I rejoined him. I found him at supper. Take a seat and bear me company, Jane. 
Please, God, it is the last meal but one you will eat at Thornfield Hall for a long time. I sat down near him, but I told him I could not eat. Is it because you have the prospect of a journey before you, Jane? Is it the thoughts of going to London that takes away your appetite? I cannot see my prospects clearly tonight, sir. I hardly know what thoughts I have in my head. Everything in life seems unreal. Except me, he returned. I'm substantial enough. Touch me. You, sir, are the most phantom-like of all. You are a mere dream. He held out his hand, laughing. Is that a dream? He said placing it close to my eyes. He had a rounded, muscular and vigorous hand, as well as a long, strong arm. Yes, though I touch it, it is a dream, said I as I put it down from before me. Sir, have you finished supper? Yes, Jane. I rang the bell and ordered away the tray, When we were again alone, I stirred the fire and then took a low seat at my master's knee. "'Tis near midnight,' I said. "'Yes, but remember, Jane, you promised to wake with me the night before my wedding.' "'I did, and I will keep my promise, for an hour or two at least. I have no wish to go to bed.' Are all your arrangements complete? All, sir. And on my part, likewise, he returned. I've settled everything, and we shall leave Thornfield tomorrow within half an hour of our return from church. Very well, sir. With what an extraordinary smile you uttered that word, very well, Jane. What a bright spot of colour you have on each cheek. How strangely your eyes glitter. Are you well? I believe I am. Believe? What is the matter? Tell me what you feel. I could not, sir. No words could tell you what I feel. I wish this present hour would never end. Who knows with what fate the next may come charged? This is hypochondria, Jane. You've been overexcited or overfatigued. Do you, sir, feel calm and happy? Calm? No. But happy? To the heart's core. I looked up at him to read the signs of bliss in his face. It was ardent and flushed. Give me your confidence, Jane, he said. Relieve your mind of any weight that oppresses it by imparting it to me. What do you fear? That I shall not prove a good husband? Tis the idea farthest from my thoughts. Are you apprehensive of the new sphere you are about to enter? Of the new life which you are passing? No, I replied. You puzzle me, Jane. 
your look and tone of sorrowful audacity perplex and pain me. I want an explanation. Then, sir, listen. You were from home last night. I was. I know that. And you hinted a while ago at something which had happened in my absence. Nothing, probably, of consequence. But in short, it has disturbed you. Let me hear it. Mrs. Fairfax has said something, perhaps. Or you have overheard the servants talk. Your sensitive self-respect has been wounded. No, sir. It struck twelve. I waited till the timepiece had concluded its silver chime and the clock its hoarse, vibrating stroke. And then I proceeded. All day yesterday I was very busy and very happy in my ceaseless bustle, for I'm not, as you seem to think, troubled by any haunting fears about the new sphere, etc. I think it a glorious thing to have the hope of living with you, because I love you. No, sir, don't caress me now. Let me talk undisturbed. Yesterday, I trusted well in Providence and believed that events were working together for your good and mine. It was a fine day, if you recollect. Calmness of the air and sky forbade apprehensions respecting your safety or comfort on your journey. I walked a little while on the pavement after tea, thinking of you. I beheld you in imagination so near me, I scarcely missed your actual presence. I thought of the life that lay before me, your life, sir, an existence more expansive and stirring than my own, as much more so as the depths of the sea to which the brook runs are the shallows of its own straight channel. I wondered why moralists call this world a dreary wilderness. For me, it blossomed like a rose. Just at sunset, the air turned cold and the sky cloudy. I went in. Sophie called me upstairs to look at my wedding dress which they had just brought, and under it, in the box, I found your present, the veil which, in your princely extravagance, you sent for from London. Resolved, I suppose, since I would not have the jewels, to cheat me into accepting something as costly. I smiled as I unfolded it, and devised how I would tease you about your aristocratic tastes and your efforts to mask your plebeian bride in the attributes of a peeress. I thought how I would carry down to you the square of unembroidered blonde I had myself prepared as the covering for my low-born head. 
and ask you if that was not good enough for a woman who could bring her husband neither fortune, beauty, nor connections. I saw how plainly you would look and heard your impetuous Republican answers and your haughty disavowal of any necessity on your part to augment your wealth or elevate your standing by marrying either a purse or a coronet. How well you read me, you witch, interposed Mr. Rochester. But what did you find in the veil besides its embroidery? Did you find poison or a dagger that you look so mournful now? No, no, sir. Besides the delicacy and richness of the fabric, I found nothing save Fairfax Rochester's pride. That did not scare me, because I'm used to the sight of the demon. But, sir, as it grew dark, the wind rose. It blew yesterday evening, not as it blows now, wild and high, but with a sullen, moaning sound, far more eerie. I wished you were home. I came into this room, and the sight of the empty chair and fireless hearth chilled me. For some time after I went to bed, I could not sleep. A sense of anxious excitement distressed me. The gale, still rising, seemed to my ear to muffle a mournful undersound Whether in the house or abroad, I could not at first tell, but it recurred, doubtful yet doleful at every lull. Last I made out it must be some dog howling at a distance. I was glad when it ceased. On sleeping, I continued in dreams the idea of a dark and gusty night continued also the wish to be with you, and experienced a strange, regretful consciousness of some barrier dividing us. During all my first sleep, I was following the windings of an unknown road. Total obscurity environed me. Rain pelted me. I was burdened with the charge of a little child, a very small creature, too young and feeble to walk, and which shivered in my cold arms and wailed piteously in my ear. I thought, sir, that you were on the road a long way before me, and I strained every nerve to overtake you and made effort on effort to utter your name and entreat you to stop, but my movements were fettered, and my voice still died away inarticulate, while you, I felt, withdrew farther and farther every moment. And these dreams weigh on your spirits now, Jane, when I'm close to you, he asked, little nervous subject. Forget visionary woe 
and think only of real happiness. You say you love me, Janet. Yes, I will not forget that, and you cannot deny it. Those words did not die inarticulate on your lips. I heard them, clear and soft, a thought too solemn perhaps, but sweet as music. I think it is a glorious thing to have the hope of living with you, Edward, because I love you. Do you love me, Jane? Repeat it. I do, sir. I do with my whole heart. Well, he said after some minutes' silence, it is strange, but that sentence has penetrated my chest painfully. Why? I think because you said it with such an earnest, religious energy, because your upward gaze at me now is the very sublime of faith, truth, and devotion. It is too much as if some spirit were near me. Look wicked, Jane, as you know well how to look. Coin one of your wild shy, provoking smiles. Tell me you hate me, tease me, vex me, do anything but move me. I would rather be incensed than saddened. I will tease you and vex you to your heart's content when I have finished my tale, but hear me to the end. I thought, Jane, you had told me all. I thought I had found the source of your melancholy in a dream. I shook my head. What? There is more. But I will not believe it to be anything important. I warn you of incredulity beforehand. Go on, he said. The disquiet of his air, the somewhat apprehensive impatience of his manner surprised me. But I proceeded. I dreamt another dream, sir, that Thornfield Hall was a dreary ruin, the retreat of bats and owls. Thought that of all the stately front, nothing remained but a shell-like wall, very high and fragile-looking. I wandered on a moonlit night through the grass-grown enclosure within. Here, I stumbled over a marble hearth, and there, over a fallen fragment of cornice. Wrapped up in a shawl, I still carried the unknown little child. I might not lay it down anywhere, however tired were my arms, however much its weight impeded my progress. I must retain it. I heard the gallop of a horse. I was sure it was you, and you were departing for many years and for a distant country. I climbed the thin wall with a frantic, perilous haste, eager to catch one glimpse of you from the top. The stones rolled from under my feet. The ivy branches I grasped gave way. The child clung round my neck in terror and almost strangled me. At last I gained the summit. 
I saw you like a speck on a white track, lessening every moment. The blast blew so strong I could not stand. I sat down on the narrow ledge. I hushed the scared infant in my lap. You turned an angle of the road. I bent forward to take a last look. The wall crumbled. I was shaken. The child rolled from my knee. I lost my balance, fell, and woke. Now, Jane, that is all, said he. All the preface, sir. The tale is yet to come. On waking, a gleam dazzled my eyes. I thought, oh, it is daylight. But I was mistaken. It was only candlelight. Sophie, I supposed, had come in. There was a light in the dressing table and the door of the closet where before going to bed I had hung my wedding dress and veil stood open. I heard a rustling there. I asked, Sophie, what are you doing? No one answered, but a form emerged from the closet. It took the light, held it aloft, and surveyed the garments pendant from the portmanteau. Sophie, Sophie, I again cried, and still it was silent. I had risen up in bed. I bent forward. First surprise, then bewilderment came over me, and then my blood crept cold through my veins. Mr. Rochester, this was not Sophie. It was not Leah. It was not Mrs. Fairfax. It was not, no, I'm sure of it, and I am still. It was not even that strange woman, Grace Poole. It must have been one of them, interrupted my master. No, sir, I solemnly assure you to the contrary. The shape standing before me had never crossed my eyes within the precincts of Thornfield Hall before. The height, the contour were new to me. Describe it, Jane. Seemed, sir, a woman, tall and large, with thick and dark hair hanging long down her back. I know not what dress she had on. It was white and straight, but whether a gown, sheet, or shroud, I cannot tell. Did you see her face? He asked. Not at first, but presently she took my veil from its place. She held it up, gazed at it long, and she threw it over her own head and turned to the mirror. At that moment... I saw the reflection of the visage and features quite distinctly in the dark, oblong glass. And how were they? Fearful and ghastly to me. Oh, sir, I never saw a face like it. I wish I could forget the roll of the red eyes and the fearful inflation of the liniments. 
ghosts are usually pale, Jane. The brow is furrowed, the black eyebrows widely raised over the bloodshot eyes. Shall I tell you of what it reminded me? You may. Of the foul German spectre, the vampire. Ah, and what did it do? Sir, it removed my veil from its gaunt head, rent it in two parts, and flinging both on the floor, trampled on them. Afterwards, it drew aside the window curtain and looked out. Perhaps it saw dawn approaching, for taking the candle, it retreated to the door. Just at my bedside, the figure stopped, the fiery eyes glared upon me. She thrust up her candle close to my face and extinguished it under my eyes. I was aware her lurid visage flamed over mine and I lost consciousness. For the second time in my life, only the second time, I became insensible from terror. Who was with you when you revived? No one, sir, but the broad day. I rose, bathed my head and face in water, drank a long draught, felt that though enfeebled I was not ill, and determined that none but you would I impart this vision. Now, sir, tell me who and what that woman was. The creature of an overstimulated brain, that is certain. I must be careful of you, my treasure. Nerves like yours were not made for rough handling. Sir, depend on it. My nerves were not in fault. The thing was real. The transaction actually took place. And your previous dreams, were they real too? Is Thornfield Hall a ruin? Am I severed from you by insuperable obstacles? Am I leaving you without a tear, without a kiss, without a word? Not yet, I replied. Am I about to do it? Why, the day has already commenced, which is to bind us indissolubly. And when we are once united, there shall be no reoccurrence of these mental terrors. I guarantee that. Mental terrors, sir? I wish I could believe them to be only such. I wish it more now than ever, since even you cannot explain to me the mystery of that awful visitant. And since I cannot do it, Jane... It must have been unreal. But sir, when I said so to myself on rising this morning, and when I looked round the room to gather courage and comfort from the cheerful aspect of each familiar object in full daylight, there, on the carpet, I saw what gave the distinct lie to my hypothesis. The veil, torn from top to bottom in two halves. 
I felt Mr. Rochester start and shudder. He hastily flung his arms round me. Thank God, he said, that if anything malignant did come near you last night, it was only the veil that was harmed. But to think what might have happened. He drew his breath short and strained so close to him I could scarcely pant. After some minutes' silence, he continued cheerily. Now, Janet, I'll explain to you all about that. It was a half-dream, half-reality. A woman did, I doubt not, enter your room. That woman was, must have been, Grace Poole. You call her a strange being yourself. From all you know, you have reason to call her so. What did she do to me? What to Mason? In a state between sleeping and waking, you noticed her entrance and her actions, but feverish, almost delirious as you were, you ascribed to her a goblin appearance, different from her own. The long, disheveled hair, the swelled face, the exaggerated stature were figments of imagination, results of a nightmare. The spiteful tearing of the veil was real and is like her. I see you would ask why I keep such a woman in your house. When we have been married a year and a day, I will tell you, but not now. Are you satisfied, Jane? To accept my solution of the mystery? I reflected, and in truth it appeared to me the only possible one. Satisfied I was not, but to please him, I endeavoured to appear so. Relieved I certainly did feel so I answered him with a contented smile. Now, as it was long past one, I prepared to leave him. Does not Sophie sleep with Adele in the nursery? He asked as I lit my candle. Yes, sir. And there is room enough in Adele's little bed for you. You must share it with her tonight, Jane. It is no wonder that the incident you have related should make you nervous. I would rather you did not sleep alone. Promise me to go to the nursery. I shall be very glad to do so, sir. And fasten the door, securely on the inside. Wake Sophie when you go upstairs, under pretense of requesting her to rouse you in good time tomorrow, for you must be dressed to finish breakfast before eight. And now, no more somber thoughts. Chase dull care away, Janet. Don't you hear what soft whispers the wind has fallen? There is no more beating of rain against the window panes. Look here. He lifted up the curtain. It's a lovely night. It was. Half heaven was pure and stainless. The clouds now trooping before the wind, which had shifted to the west, were filing off eastward in long, silvered columns. The moon shone peacefully. 
Well, said Mr. Rochester, gazing inquiringly into my eyes, how is my Janet now? The night is serene, sir, and so am I. And you will not dream of separation and sorrow tonight, but of happy love and blissful union. This prediction was but half fulfilled. I did not indeed dream of sorrow, but as little did I dream of joy, for I never slept at all. With little Adele in my arms, I watched the slumber of childhood, so tranquil, so passionless, so innocent, and waited for the coming day. All my life was awake and a stare in my frame. As soon as the sun rose, I rose too. I remember Adele clung to me as I left her. I remember I kissed her as I loosened her little hands from my neck. I cried over her with strange emotion and quitted her because I feared my sobs would break her still sound repose. She seemed the emblem of my past life, and he I was now to array myself to meet the dread but adored type of my unknown future day. <laughs>